But before I get started, let me tell you about a little bit about snow and churches. <laughs> First church I pastored was in Indianapolis. And it was the kind of church that probably would only call a rookie pastor. Had a lot of trouble. Attendance was down to almost nothing. Financial trouble. And Lord blessed us with some growth. We just had a bunch of folks saved. And as a church almost full of new converts. And I'd read somewhere that new converts is very important to keep them faithful. Said if you get them seven weeks in a row, man, you got them. But said if they miss three weeks in a row, they're gone. So I'm working hard, sending letters, visiting people, and we're, we're doing pretty good. But we were at the end of a 12-acre field with nothing in it. And so four inches of snow, it would blow down and we'd have two feet in our parking lot, which was gravel and couldn't be graded, couldn't, well, so we hit a Sunday, terrible snow, just, you just couldn't get to, to the church, and so we did not have church, and so that meant all the new converts missed. Next week, on the weekend, we had a terrible snow again, and you could not get through the parking lot. And the next week, we had a historic blizzard that people still talk about. And I mean, it really hurt the church. A bunch of people quit coming, and it was just an awful time. And as a pastor, I was just sick and complaining. I was talking to the pastor I was saved, whose ministry I was saved under, and I was telling him how bad this was. He said, Phil, let me ask you three questions. He said, number one, he said, whose church is it? It's the Lord's church. He said, whose snow is it? Well, it's obviously not my snow. It's the Lord's. And he said, if the Lord wants to drop his snow on his church, whose business is it? And I looked at him and said, I'm never coming to you for advice again as long as I live. Four years ago, I'm pastoring in Chicago. We had terrible snowy weather 17 weeks in a row. I mean, it was disastrous. The streets were full of snow. They were trying to use trucks to carry the snow over and dump it in Lake Michigan. And, but, I mean, there are times I'd park as much as six blocks away from the house because you couldn't get close. It was just terrible. We have a deacons meeting, and the deacons were talking about how badly the snow had hurt our church. I said, men... Let me, let me ask you three questions. <clears throat> Who's, whose church is it? And well, they all agreed it was the Lord's. And I said, whose snow is it? And they all agreed it was the Lord's. And I looked at him and said, if the Lord wants to dump his snow on his church, whose business is it? They thought I would add the most profound pastor <laughs> in the world. I didn't tell them where I got that idea from. Very quickly, if I can mention the books over here, I have worked for a number of years. I'm not saying everybody needs to do it this way, but what God's called me to, I write with the purpose of taking the complicated and making it simple. And we've reached an era because what the schools, the universities, the news programs on television, so forth, absolutely full of false information. Our theological seminaries mostly are full of false information. So the whole goal of my writing has been ta to take important subjects and to explain the complicated in the simplest form so folks would have it. First thing I ever wrote was called Faithful Baptist Witness. It is a 230-page uh, book looking at our history, our Baptist doctrine and our history of the people that have held to this doctrine. It's probably the thing I'm best known for. I just got a letter um, yesterday, or e email rather yesterday, from a young lady who said she read this when she was in high school and it changed her life in understanding the church. And we're living in a day and age in which our young adults are fleeing from our churches in epidemic level and don't realize what they're giving up or what they're getting. And, and so this was written to be simple, to be understood by the average person in the pew. There's some wonderful Baptist history books written for theologians. And they're great and they make a contribution. But not everybody's a theologian. And most of them cost $100 and are 1,000 pages. And not everybody's going to do that. So uh, this was written for the average person in the pew. It's a $15 book. I have a book here that my pastor asked me to uh, write with him called Evangelism Made Simple. How a clear presentation of the gospel can make your witnessing more effective. 
I don't know about you, but I'm constantly talking to people who say, well, I can't do all that stuff. Salvation is not about what you do. Salvation is about what Jesus did. And it's about how to keep that message clear. When you're talking to people, it has a chapter on witnessing to Catholics and a chapter on witnessing to Jews and a chapter on witnessing to evolutionists and a chapter on witnessing to Muslims and a number of things, a chapter refuting Calvinism, which keeps a lot of people from witnessing and things, things of that nature. Um, I have two books on United States history. We so desperately need to be, know our history. Listen to any political campaign. Listen to the news reports any given day. And you'll find out folks are just absolutely ignorant about our history and our heritage. And these are written to explain American history uh, simply and from a Christian perspective. Then I have two books on um, world history. World history. I'm just going to tell you we're in trouble as a country because we do not know the history of the world. We don't know what Islam is, for example. I have five chapters on here from the founding of Islam till it spread across the world. We don't know what socialism or communism is. And we, we deal in here with that. We don't know what paganism is, and we deal with that. It begins with creation and ends with the second coming of Christ. We're the only people who know how it started and the only people who know how it ends. I mean, there's not going to be a volume three. Okay? And uh, those are $20 each. The U.S. history books are 15 each. We have a number of smaller books designed to explain complicated things. This one's just, for example, is on biblical English. And what I mean by that, different parts of our culture and our language develop its own terminology. The football English, for example. You talk to somebody not familiar with football, and that's wondering, what in the world are you talking about? There is biblical English. A lot of people think the reason the King James Bible reads differently is because it's old. It reads differently because the words and concepts are not unique, are, are rather are unique in terms of day-to-day conversation. And uh, we try to explain all that. And it's, it's not nearly as hard to understand as you think. And we try to address all that. Just for example, people will say often, the word propitiation, we shouldn't use that in the Bible because it's, it's not a word you use in everyday language, which is true. And almost every modern English Bible takes that word out. But the word propitiation means to cover something so completely that it never existed. How exactly would you use that in day-to-day language? But the glorious thing is that it's talking about my sin. Man, I don't want that word gone. I want to hang on to that word forever. And uh, that's just one example, but we deal with a lot of things like that. Would you turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 23? I I do have a special, which is about a third the price if you were to buy everything individually. If you buy everything, we charge you $100. And that saves you the trouble of having to pick what you want. I tell everybody, I I will answer any questions about the books except for one. And I thought, don't announce this, I get this question. I'll be standing by a table full of books with my name on them, and somebody will walk up to me and say, which one do you recommend? (laughs) I'll let you guess. I want to talk a little bit this morning about the authority of Scripture. We're in terrible trouble today in our country because we do not understand the authority of Scripture at all. I do not mean to imply by any stretch of the imagination there was ever a time in this country where everybody or even a majority of people obeyed the Scripture. But they understood the concept of revelation from God, whether they lived by it or not. Today, we don't know how to tell if someone's a male or a female. And if you think you do, you're considered some sort of an arrogant, uh, hateful person. We, we let people talk to us about how global warming has changed all the society and we must give up our freedom and prosperity. And when they used to say that to us, it was because winters had gotten so warm. And now they tell us that because winters are so cold. The evidence for global warming is weather. In fact, they're making a big deal because... Uh, right now, we're having weather that we haven't had since the 1960s. And so they said that, that's you know, climate change. Wait a minute. It happened before in the 1960s. This is not new. 
Back then, they said we have to give up our freedom and prosperity because of global cooling. And then when it wasn't cold for a few winters, they said you have to give up your freedom and prosperity because of global warming. And, and they pushed the global warming thing so hard, now they're afraid to go back to global cooling. But since 1983, we have been told every year by numbers of influential people that we only have 10 years left if we don't do something right away. And they would repeat that in 1984 and repeat it again in 1995 and repeat it again in you know, 2000. They're constantly telling us we only have 10 years left. And if you wonder about that, they say you don't believe in science. Do you know how long we've only had 10 years left? When I first read Al Gore's book in 1983 and it said we only had 10 years left, I didn't worry about that. You know why I didn't worry about it? Didn't match the Bible. Simple enough, period. I could go on and on about what we do not understand or know today. And the concept, we lost the concept of there being a final authority, there being a soul authority, there being a biblical authority, and today it's the emotion and fad of the moment. And, and, and the fad will change in a little bit. Right now, as if there weren't guns, people wouldn't be motivated to violence. That's the fad of the moment. That the existence of guns causes violence. What happened with Cain and Abel? I mean, we say so many stupid things. I don't know if you've seen the report. It's been all over the news the last two weeks. Some guy did a study, and he said the American people now are more divided than they have ever been. And of course, my response is, have you heard of the Civil War? Slightly more divided then than we are now. I mean, we're just, but we've lost completely the concept of biblical authority. Everything now is reaction to the fad of the moment. And uh, this is not a new problem. Israel had this problem. And in Jeremiah chapter 23, the concept of authority is dealt with. Uh, for time's sake, I'm going to start in verse 9. Mine heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man and like a man whom wine hath overcome. I've probably had the moments when you've had to be around somebody under the influence of alcohol. I pastored in inner city Chicago for over a decade. People under the influence of alcohol would wander to our church all the time. They would come in in the middle of our services all the time. They would wander in and, and speak to me. And, I mean, you'd watch them, and, and that, I get to shaking. And it's not, they're not trying to be rude. They can't control it. Jeremiah said, I'm like one of those drunken folks. That's a big statement. Why? He said, I'm like a man whom wine hath overcome because of the Lord and because of the words of his holiness. He said, when I see what God has said and how people are reacting to it, he said, I shake like a drunken man. By the way, notice it was the words of his holiness. How many lessons there are just in that one phrase? When the Lord talks about inspiration, he always talks about words. In many churches today, they talk about concepts or doctrines or ideas. Whenever the Lord talks about inspiration, it is words. God-inspired words. And they are words of holiness. If people followed those words, we'd have a much different country. It interests me, the same people who cried out against the Bible and don't listen to the Bible, and the Bible's too restricting and all that kind of thing, are now screaming that we must be sensitive about how we treat women. Guess what? There wouldn't be any rape or abuse, or harassment if we followed what the Bible said about morality. There wouldn't be any women having to raise babies by themselves. So after decades of saying, we're not going to be bound by the Bible, now they're demanding we do things that are what the Bible taught us to do before you all did away with it. But it's the fad of the moment. Don't think it's going to lead to any long-term protection for women. That's not going to happen. Not, not this way. Heck, here's the result of not paying attention to the words of His Holiness. Verse 10, For the land is full of adulterers. 
you don't suppose that reminds you of any place that you know about. And there are countries where immorality is open and common and part of the culture, and every country has a problem with immorality, but there are other countries where it's not promoted and it's not open and it's not part of the culture. That's reality. What has the United States become? The land is full of adulterers, for because of swearing the land mourneth, the pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up, and their course is evil, and their force is not right. Now watch this, for both prophet and priest are profane. Their spiritual leaders had become ungodly and caught up in, in immorality and ungodliness. Now, in many, many religious denominations in the United States, that is true and open and accepted. But among the folks who don't pretend to accept it, or pretend rather not to accept it, we have moral problems among the clergy that has brought us to the point that they threaten the future of our churches. And I know more than one church that is broken down after two or three preachers in a row got caught in immorality. And we're not the people that say this is okay. And yet we're living with the results of this thinking that spread far beyond the bounds we would have ever guessed 30 years ago. For both prophet and priest are profane. Yea, in my house have I found their wickedness, saith the Lord. Wherefore their ways shall be unto them as slippery ways in the darkness. They shall be driven on and fall therein. For I will bring evil upon them even the year of their visitation, saith the Lord. Are you all ready? When, when preachers lead a nation in immorality and wickedness, there is a judgment coming. I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. They prophesied in Baal, caused my people Israel to err. I have seen also in the prophets of Jerusalem a horrible thing. Again, the spiritual leaders. They commit adultery. They walk in lies. They strengthen also the hands of evildoers, that none doth return from his wickedness. They are all of them unto me as Sodom, and the inhabitants thereof as Gomorrah. I will t- I've been, been a preacher for 44 years. Yeah, I, I know I don't look like it. I want you to know I started when I was three. I was a child prodigy. But I've been a preacher for 44 years. That's a fact. And when we first began to be hit by all the moral scandals, I was shocked. But I used to say things about, at least you don't find homosexuality in our circles. That's what I said years ago. Haven't been saying it much lately. I have seen also the prophets of Jerusalem, a horrible thing. They commit adultery, walk in lies. They strengthen also the hands of evildoers that, that none doth return from his wickedness. They are all of them unto me as Sodom and the inhabitants thereof as Gomorrah. How would you like the Lord to write you off the way he did Sodom and Gomorrah? Therefore, thus saying the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with wormwood. Make them drink the water of gall. For from the prophets of Jerusalem is profaneness got forth in all the land. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. A false religious message makes you worse off than if you had no religious message. They speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the Lord. Did y'all catch that? Where their authority comes from? Where they feel? What they think? It's utterly amazing. I appreciate your prayers. I had this in, in uh, Florida when I was a Bible college president there. But many, many states, the United States, uh, Bible colleges like we would be used to, like you have in North Carolina. You're one of the most free states in the union. But Bible colleges are outlawed, ones that are not regulated by the government. We fought it for five years in Florida, finally got a new law there. And I got to write the law in the course of the thing. And the law says that, if you have a religious name, a religious purpose, and you don't take government money, you're not under the jurisdiction of the state. Amen. We're fighting in Illinois right now on that. I have the privilege of being part of Day Spring Bible College, which is the Bible college at Quentin Road Baptist Church where I'm a member. And um, There's a law in Illinois that says you can't have schools like this that aren't regulated by the state. And people ask, what's so wrong with being regulated by the state? And there's a lot of answers to that. One is we believe in the separation of church and state. And you are not separate from the people that regulate you. Let me give you another one. You know the number one thing in the states where Bible colleges are illegal? You want to know the number one thing the government is worried about? 
do you accept homosexual students? And we don't. And so we're in defiance of the law in Illinois. Now, by the grace of God, and I hope this is true, forgive me for sounding so skeptical, just a Friday, we got word we've been fighting this. We, we Several of us spoke to the State Senate Board of Education a couple weeks ago and got a very good response from there, a committee on education. And uh, we got a call from the Board of Education Friday saying they want to work something out that leaves us satisfied about religious freedom. Folks are starting to rejoice. Can I be honest with you? I'm a skeptic. I don't trust these people. And uh, everything they said Friday was great, let me say. And I hope I'm the one that's wrong and they mean all that. It would just be wonderful. But, but I'm not rejoicing with everybody else. But it would be something if we could accomplish something like that in the state of Illinois. But I, I'm just telling you, one reason for not being regulated by the state is the state wants to demand that you support ungodliness. Say, well, why? Because that's what everybody believes now. Say, but we're Bible believers, the Bible's against it. So that's not how people interpret the Bible now. That's not what people want now. They speak a vision of their own hearts and not out of the mouth of the Lord. We're not the people who believe. The majority gets to decide what's moral and immoral. We believe in authority. God gave us an authority. And, And please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say, but it's so important to get this. I do not agree with everything in the Bible. But I'm smart enough to know that when I disagree with the Bible, I'm the one that's wrong. I got that. I don't really like sometimes the part about forgiving everybody. It's possible that if I'd written the Bible, that wouldn't be in there. I wrestle with that. But I understand who's in charge. I don't like the doctrine of hell. I didn't say I don't believe in it. I just don't like it. As a pastor, asked to preach the funeral of a lost person, which I've done several times. And there's always somebody there crying, bless their heart, wanting you to assure them that their lost loved one that died is not in hell. And I've had ladies crying on my shoulder, literally. My shoulder's wet, saying, please, 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 tell me he's not in hell. And you want, no, you want to know what I want to do when it happens? I want to say, ma'am, everything's going to be all right. But it's not true. Because I didn't create this world in this universe. Uh, Sometimes I really dislike sin, but I don't necessarily dislike sin that much that I'd create a hell. But I didn't create anything. So how I feel about it really doesn't matter. I was in Canada preaching in a meeting, and, and some of the folks in church came to me and said, there's an American talk show host here in our town, and he loves to tear up preachers. Said, would you be willing to go on and face him? Okay. I've been yelled at before. I didn't lose any sleep over it. I go and discover to my shock that this guy is from my hometown. Not only is he from my hometown, we went to the same elementary school. He went there one year before I did, one year up. And so we're sitting talking before the show, and it's like old home week, talking about grade school teachers and the playground and all that kind of stuff. And, and it's a two-hour show, and it starts, and he's being as nice to me. He's throwing me the easiest questions. They're softballs. I'm hitting them out of the park. I mean, it's just good. We do the first hour. I saw the, there was a five-minute break between first hour and second hour, and I saw the station manager call him in the office, and I had a pretty good idea what that meant because it's controversy that sells on talk radio not being nice. So he comes out, and this was his first question in the second hour. Do you believe that the Jews that Hitler mercilessly slaughtered during the Holocaust died and went to hell where God treated them worse than Hitler did? That's a fun question to try and explain the answer to. I told him, Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for everybody's sin, Baptists and Jews alike. And if a Baptist puts their faith and trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, they die and go to heaven. If they don't, they die and go to hell. If a Jew puts their faith and trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, they die and go to heaven. If they don't, they die and go to hell. And I mean, the call-in people went crazy. First guy that called claimed I'd endorsed Hitler in my answer. Then a guy called and said, you're the one that deserves to go to hell. You ought to go to hell. I said, sir, you have no idea how correct you are. You called that exactly right. 
but by the grace of God, I'm not going. And I mean, it just went on like that. Finally, we had a commercial break, and the guy said, why did you put yourself through that? You knew I was setting you up. I said, can I let you on a secret? I said, I don't like the doctrine of hell. But this universe is not based upon what I do and what I don't like. This is the way the Lord told me this works. And I'm not the authority, period. He said, I could never, ever agree that somebody else was my authority. He said, you may not agree, but it sure don't change anything. Verse 17, they say still unto them that despise me, the Lord has said, you shall have peace. And they say, everyone that walketh after the imagination of his own heart, no evil shall come upon you. If it's in your heart, it'll work out okay. But it's not the truth. I could go on through several verses and address other things that have to do with authority, but I'm going to ask you to drop down to verse 25. I have heard what the prophet said that prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. Don't we hear that all the time? Somebody has a prophecy, somebody has a dream, somebody has a word. But that's not authority. What God says is authority. Verse 26, how long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yea, they're the prophets of the deceit of their own heart. And those folks whose authority is how they feel about it are preaching lies to you. Our feelings are not in any sense authority. Verse 27. Which think to cause my people to forget my name by their dreams, which they tell every man to his neighbor, as their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal. The prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. He that hath my word. Glory to God, we have his word. And it's he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? It's not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, like a hammer that breaketh a rock in pieces. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that steal my words, every one from his neighbor. Are you ready? This is a predominant tactic of people who want to be the authority rather than have God be the authority. This is not a new issue. If you read in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul said there were folks corrupting the word of God even while the New Testament was being given. What I mean? It's very simple. Everything was handwritten. He made a handwritten copy of the scriptures, and you changed it to suit you. There are false teachers. When the Bible began to be delivered to man, the Bible refuted their false teachings. Christianity became popular. They wanted to get in on the popular, but they didn't want to agree with all Christian teaching. So they just fixed the copies they handwrote and had handwritten. Usually it had to do with one of four areas. It had to do with the Trinity, which was to them an offensive doctrine. I mean, it was a doctrine men can't explain. It makes men humble. God is three and yet one. And I know people have all kinds of ways to try and explain it, but they don't hold up. It's beyond me. And that's what I have. It's beyond me. I am not the authority. If I was the authority, I wouldn't use numbers that way. But God is. But folks didn't like the Trinity, so they took out 1 John 5, 7 all, a bunch of times and things like that. And, and then the idea that um, uh, Jesus is the Son of God wasn't popular. Because most false teachers then and now, no matter how they say it, they want to be treated like they're the Son of God. And if Jesus is the Son of God, then he's the authority, and I'm not. I may be a pastor, I may be an evangelist, but I'm not the authority. Jesus is. So folks didn't, false teachers didn't like that. False teachers didn't like what the Scripture had to say about morality. Because they discovered being the person who's up in front of a bunch of people all the time can create all kinds of opportunities for immorality, and they did not want that taken away from them. And false teachers did not like the idea of salvation by faith because they wanted you to believe that you needed them to go to heaven. That's what gives them control over you. 
Ever ask all the scandals about Catholicism and the priest, how they got away with that for centuries? It's because people within Catholicism thought they needed those priests to go to heaven. And so they tolerated all kinds of things. Something about all the modern forms of communication has just trashed that for them, but that, that's the way it was viewed for literally centuries. And so what people would do, they would just change. They're doing handwritten copies of the Bible. You just add a little bit here, take out some there, add some here, take some there, and they came up with a Bible that taught what they wanted. Back in those days, all copies of the Scripture were handwritten. And so it was a big job. They said it would take a man working full-time a year to make a copy of the Bible. Bibles were rare. They were expensive. False teachers tried to destroy them. The Roman Empire tried to destroy them. The Roman Empire burnt millions of copies, which means this incredible amount of effort that went in to make those copies had, had been taken away from folks. And so false teachers' copies sometimes carried weight. And what happened is they began to make manuscripts of the Bible. They fell into two categories. That category, which would match what we have in the King James Bible, it goes back to those manuscripts. And then the doctored manuscripts, which while they were not always doctored the same way, and, and, and so they contradicted each other some, but, but still you would find the Trinity lessened or removed, salvation by faith lessened or removed, uh, so forth. And so they would they'd have a reasonable amount of harmony among them. And you ended up with two sets of manuscripts, no matter how the historians want to do this. University of Michigan has some of the old manuscripts. There aren't really that many that are corrupt. If you read about there being thousands of old manuscripts, uh, Greek New Testament, that's true. Only 45 of them that match the corrupt line. Some of them are at the University of Michigan in the United States. Every year they have a conference entitled from the King James Bible, or from... Uh, um, the ancient manuscripts to the King James Bible. And they're talking about the ones they have. And they have several people come in and speak. One year, several people complained that everybody they have speak was from the one perspective. And so they agreed to let somebody, turned out to be me, come talk to, from the other perspective. So I went to University of Michigan. And they gave me 90 minutes. And so my first point was, there is no connection between your manuscripts and the King James Bible. He said, now I had 89 minutes left to talk about where the King James Bible did come from. It came from the majority of manuscripts. Today, most religious leaders exalt the minority of manuscripts. You say, why would they do that? Because the minority of manuscripts says what they want to say. And every copy of the English Bible in existence outside of the King James Bible comes from the authority of those minority manuscripts. Do you know there have been over a 1,000 translations of the Bible into English since 1611? Most of them don't last long. They don't touch people's hearts. They come and they go. In your lifetime, you've probably seen a bunch of them come and go. But people, there are people, particularly religious leaders, who like what was said in those manuscripts. Just for one example, real quick, ending in Mark 12, in, in some of those, in two of the famous from the minority type, don't have the resurrection of Christ. So false teachers who don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, they like that. And they've gone and say, since it was the earliest, which they somehow know, and they, they said, the others must have come along, and they said, well, there's no resurrection, we'll make up one and put it in there, but that's authoritative because Mark was first and it doesn't have the resurrection. Really? That's what they want to believe. Don't you think the Jehovah's Witnesses want to believe that? And the modernists want to believe that? But the amazing thing, in the last 50 years, you've seen evangelicals fall into that line because these folks would use the same line they use with global warming. If you're really smart, you know this. I'm not going to tell you how you know, but this is what the smart people believe, that the minority manuscript should be the authority so how'd you get a minority manuscript? Right there, verse 30. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that steal my words, every one from his neighbor. Did you know there's 64,000 fewer words in the minority text than there is in the majority text? That's why it's so different in his teaching. 
I don't know about you, but 64,000 sounds like an awful lot to me. And when it comes to the Bible, one sounds like an awful lot. If you would drop down to verse 36, it explains another way this happens. And the burden of the Lord shall you mention no more, for every man's word shall be his burden. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> for you have perverted the words of the living God, of the Lord of hosts our God. Not only do you take some out, you change some. First Peter 2.2 talks about the wonder of, of what God's word does. And it helps us to grow. But in the minority text and the English translations that come from the minority text, they have added the words unto salvation. It says those good works that bring you to salvation. And all they had to do was stick in three words to get that teaching. Okay. They perverted them, you've changed them. A lot could be said about this. I will say a lot about it this week preaching for Pastor Moore. But I give you this quick illustration to be finished with. There's a group that is dedicated, because there's over 5,000 copies, you can look it up on the internet, of the majority text, compared to 45 of the minority text and five that are mixed. And um, these, these majority text manuscripts are old, and many of them are crumbling. There's certain ways they need to be taken care of, or they just crumble to dust. And many of them are in really bad shape. So there's an organization. It's not a religious organization as such. It's designed to encourage folks to preserve these texts and take care of them the right way. Right kind of temperature, right kind of protection from moisture, that kind of thing. And, and there are people from various religious perspectives are part of that. They just believe in the majority text. And um, we were contacted. I'm on the board of this organization. We were contacted right after we got a website from a Greek monastery that said, you know, we read this stuff on the Internet, and it amazes us. said, there's a lot more than the ones you guys list. He said, there are monasteries all over Greece and Turkey that have manuscripts that are not on your list. He said, we have 1,100 old manuscripts of the Bible that's not on your list. So my immediate response was, how many of them are majority text, how many of them are minority text? The answer was, they're all majority text because no one would have considered a minority text worth saving. And if you ever read about it, Sinaiticus, the most famous of the minority texts, was found in a wastebasket where they were using pages from it to start fires. So how much did those people respect it? Anyway, when the word got out about this group, there, there was a group that's very minority text-oriented, been very critical uh, of majority text people like myself and others in our organization. And, and they, uh, they wanted to go see it. They wanted to go to the monastery. The monastery said, you have to ask these people. We've made them our American representatives. So their board and our board met in Chicago, where I was pastoring at the time. We, we are in an Italian restaurant. We had our own room, long table. They're all sitting on one side. We're sitting on the other side. Next to me was a uh, priest from the Russian Orthodox Church. Far cry from where we are on almost any doctrine, but they believe in the majority text. And I'm sitting next to one of their priests. He's wearing the red robe and the weird-looking hat and all that. Looks like a... Orthodox priest, and their denomination put him in charge of being spokesman for them on these issues. Threw me completely for a loop. Even though he represented the Russian Orthodox Church, he was born in Texas. <laughs> and he spoke with a southern drawl. And I, I was just, I'm sitting next to him, and we're, I'm really <laughs> amazing. But he says to the chief guy, on the other side, he said, you guys think you are so such scholars? He said, every 10-year-old boy in the Russian Orthodox Church knows the Bible better than you do. And he said, every one of them would understand if you had thousands of copies of the Bible that said it this way and 40 that said it a different way, that the one with thousands would be right and the minority would be fake. And he gave this illustration. Comic books today are big business in the United States. Somebody just sold an action number one comic book, The Origin of Superman, in good condition for $1,100,000 just by taking it to a comic book convention. But he said, if you went to a comic book convention, you say, I've got an action number one. People would flock to you. But he said, my action number one is different than all the other action number ones. Because in my action number one, Superman gets killed. 
Do you know what people would offer you for it? Why? They would know it was a fake. I mean, the comic book people have more sense than many of our leading theologians. I looked at him and said, I'm going to pretend I made that up. <laughs> that I made up that illustration. I'm going to be using it in Baptist churches. You're not going to be there anyway. You'll never know. <laughs> Glory to God. Our sense of authority demands something. That the God who gave us his authoritative word Amen. preserved his authoritative word. Amen. You say, but to be scholarly, you have to... Being scholarly is not the authority. You and I are not the authority. The majority of seminaries are not the authority. The majority of denominations is not the authority. We have an authority. It's the words God gave. When they're popular, it's the authority. When they're unpopular, the majority text says in more than one place, for wives to follow their husbands. I just have a sneaking suspicion that even with the best wife, that's not always popular. Amen. Right. But it's still what God said. Yeah. The right. verses that forbid women to preach have been corrected in the minority text. And so that's a big part of the debate today. That's a huge part of the debate. Another reason the state doesn't like Bible colleges like ours. They want women admitted to pastoral program, which we won't do. Because of plain, clear teaching in the Bible. It's not that women don't have a place in the work of the Lord, and we have several majors they can be in, and they're vitally important to the work of the Lord. But God gave qualifications about being a preacher. See, but that's not popular now. That's not in now. That's, that being popular is not the authority. What God said is the authority. I was raised by East Kentucky hillbillies, literally. I don't know how much they're like North Carolina hillbillies, but they were. I mean, that was a term they used to describe themselves. They thought the Beverly Hillbillies was the greatest television show they'd ever seen in their life. And they didn't get the point that they were making fun of hillbillies. The demo was just great, you know. And they really did teach fussing, fighting, feuding as a way to deal with people. And they would. When I was going to kindergarten, my dad sat me down and explained this important truth to me so I'd be ready for kindergarten. The person that throws the first punch in a fight most always wins. And he sent me to kindergarten with that wisdom. <laughs> it's true, by the way. And um, when my wife was getting our son ready to go to kindergarten, she said things like, never get in a fight, never hit anybody. If you have a problem, go to the teacher. And uh, so I said, man, is this different training than what I got. But, but I lived by that for a while. And God called me to be a preacher. And, and I had an incident. And I had a preacher explaining to me, if you want to be used of God, you don't get to do what you want to do all the time. He said, your entire ministry, you'll meet people that deserve to be hit. But he said, you never, never get to hit them. The fact they deserve it is not relevant. Because God lists 16 qualifications for being a preacher. And one of them is no striker. We spend most of our time talking about one qualification. There's 16. And if you go around hitting people that deserve to be hit... You are not qualified to be a preacher. <laughs> so that was tough. I didn't care much for that. That wasn't my culture. And I can make an argument why some people deserve to be hit. <laughs> but God said so. You all get the idea? Very, very quickly, I'm done with this. I was preaching in Maryland a little over a year ago. And they told me ahead of time, they said, young man in the church who has come forward seven weeks in a row on the invitation to talk about salvation but hadn't got saved. He came forward that week, asked if he could talk to me. They made arrangements. We sat down. He said, I don't mean to be difficult. He said, I know the people here think I mean to be difficult, but he said, I don't mean to be. He said, I really do want to be saved. I really do. But he said, this doesn't make any sense to me. How could somebody else pay for my sin? He said, it doesn't make any sense. I said, can I let you on a secret? 
Doesn't make any sense to me either. But that's why it's called grace and not logic. Jesus Christ, who raised himself from the dead, promised that if I would trust his death, burial, resurrection as the full payment for my sin, he would save me. He saved a thief on the cross. And I said, I make it a a, uh, policy. I do not argue with people that raise themselves from the dead. Now, so far, I've only come across one person. But I said, if you raise yourself from the dead, I don't argue with you. I figure there's something greater here than my sense of logic. I said, I'll agree with you. It doesn't sound logical to me either, but Jesus said so. And so I believe. He looked at me and said, I believe. Because this is what you got to get free from. My thoughts, my ideas, my logic. I just preached three weeks ago in that church a year later. And I wondered flying out there if he was there and how he was doing and if I would see him and so forth. I got there, got saved. When I was there, he got baptized. He's a faithful member of the church, active in things, active in visitation. Took me to lunch. We sat and talked for a while. He said, this is the most fun thing in the world to look people in the eye and say, this is for you. Because Jesus said so. It's a principle of authority. It changes everything when you get it. And if you're here this morning and you never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I'd plead with you, get rid of your ideas and trust what he said. Pastor. Biblical authority all comes down to obeying this word or disobeying this word. This is, this is the thing that steers us. This is the thing that guides us. Doesn't matter what polls may say or what surveys may say. Doesn't matter what politicians may say. It all comes down to one thing, biblical authority. It's what the Word of God says. Thank the Lord that we have the Word of God today. Now, if you're here this morning and you say, Preacher, if I were to die today, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know that I'm saved and going to heaven when I die. If you can honestly say that this morning, you do. if you just slip your hand up for me this morning and you can take it right back down, praise the Lord. That's wonderful. Praise the Lord. Let me ask you this, though. Is there one here today? I'm not going to come back and try to drag you down the aisle. I don't do that, but I would like to pray for you. I'll not pray for you by name, but, but the Lord will know who you are. And you'd say, Preacher, I'm going to be honest right now that if I died, I'm not really sure that I would go to heaven. And I want you to, I want you to please pray for me. I'm going to be honest. If I died, I'm not sure that I would go to heaven. Pray for me, Pastor. Right now, you'd slip your hand up. Is there one like that anywhere this morning? And you let me pray for you. Is there one anywhere? You just let me pray for you right now. All right. I take it by that then at least the best I can tell. Everybody here today is professes to be born again. You know what, church? It all comes down to one thing. <laughs> it's really not difficult. It's really not hard. That may not be popular. But life is really not that complicated. It comes down to one thing thing. We base what we believe and we base the way we live on the Word of God. Plus nothing, minus nothing. Listen, the altar is going to be open today if you need to come. Uh, Maybe you're here this morning and God's laid it on your heart to pray for someone or pray about something and and, uh, maybe you'd just like to slip down to this old-fashioned altar today and say, Lord, thank you for giving us that final authority. Thank you for giving us the word of God. Then you can do that today. Let's all stand if you would please. Father, we thank you so much for this time we've had together this morning. God, thank you for giving us. Thank you for giving us the final authority. Thank you for giving us the word of God. Thank you for, Lord, giving us that that compass, that glorified GPS that tells us exactly where to go. It, It tells us exactly what to do. We don't have to base it upon feeling. We don't have to base it upon, uh, Lord, upon fad. 
we can base it upon the Word of God. I pray that you'll bless in this invitation. And Lord, I pray that you speak to every heart. And God, I pray that we'll leave here today saying, thank you, thank you, Lord, for giving me the Word of God. I pray you'll bless now, please, this time. And we thank you in Jesus' name. And our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. And as the pianist plays, if you're here today and there's a need in your life, I'm going to invite you to come right now. Just come and find a place on this old-fashioned altar and do business with the Lord. Pastor's going to make his way down to uh, the main floor here. And if I can pray with you about something, listen, why don't you come? Come and do business with the Lord today. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, just for a few moments here, if you need to come, you come while we wait. Folks are in the altar this morning. We'll give this another another moment. If you need to come, the altar is open. You come while we wait. If you need prayer, we're here for you. We'd love to pray with you this morning. Hey, if there's a need, don't leave with don't don't leave without that need being met today. All right. This stanza is going to be just for you. You say, preacher, I've got a got a huge burden in my life right now. That's fine. Come, we'll pray about that. What about it? Would you come while we wait?